Paracast, with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Piedding. So, my friend David, what do you say when you're going to interview somebody you've known three quarters of your life, which refers to Jim Mosley? That's a tough one. What do you talk about that you haven't talked about privately, but that's going to be of interest to the audience? Well, I haven't talked with him as much as we used to in the last 10 or 15 years. So I think there's a lot of stuff there that would be interesting. And even the things I've talked to him about show that Jim is a far more well-rounded individual than a lot of people expect. You know, you have Saucer Smear, where he pokes fun at UFOs, at the same time quoting serious stories and serious reports, of course. But you kind of look at it as kind of like a gossip column, you know, maybe be a little bit of a national inquirer of the UFO field about the strange goings on in it. And that's one thing which is fascinating because you can't separate, unfortunately, as much as we'd like mm, to. Yeah. You cannot separate the UFO field from its personalities. Sure, I said it's a very sure. sad thing because what happens here is that we have all these crazy events that are going on, but we also have this fact that it attracts a lot of unusual people. And that's present company included, of course. <laughs> well, there's the whole cult of personality thing, but at the same time, one has to think that underneath of that, there are some actual truths to these events. There are some actual elements to these events that almost take them out of the realm of entertainment. And you and I get emails from this guy. I don't know if we're going to mention him at this point, but he sends out these group emails to pretty much a who's who of the UFO field. And uh, there was an email, I don't know if you saw today from him, where he talks about everything that all of the topics that he mentions in this, in this list that he mails to that basically it's all about entertainment. And you know what, Gene? I don't know if I agree with that. I think that from my own personal point of view, and it really is just my take on it, that there's some unusual stuff going on, and I really want to understand what's going on underneath of these external events. And when people start to make it into entertainment or start to you know add humor to it, I understand that humor is important for any topic, really, just about any topic, but... I think that what happens is people get caught up in that stuff, and then you end up moving away from truth, and you move towards these weird perceptions about things that maybe are not reflective of what's really going on. This is the big dichotomy, because we all want to talk about people, you know. I think I said this on another show. We are all yeah. talking monkeys who want to talk about other talking monkeys, and mm -hmm. because of that, it's very difficult to separate the personality cult from UFOs. And it's a factual matter also that people who spend a lot of time investigating this subject, well, unless they're independently wealthy, which doesn't apply to too many, they've got to earn a living. So how do they earn right. a living? Do they have a day job and at night they pursue UFOs or do they go out and lecture about the subject, write books, etc.? At that point, is what they say tainted because they're using it to earn a living? Right. You know, what, what do you say, for example, Stanton Friedman has earned money from writing books and from going out and lecturing. Should that necessarily allow us to dismiss what he says? The guy well, has the to make a living. He has to feed sure. his family. Sure. Well, the question is, did he write the books because he's interested in the topic or did he write the books feeling he was going to make a big financial killing? I have to believe, Gene, that no one in this field is making a huge amount of money off of it, though. I've been told by, by certain people that that is perhaps not necessarily true, but I look at even the marketing material for these conferences and events that are put on around UFOs, 
and it looks really low rent to me. It doesn't look like any of the kind of stuff that you and I are used to in the high tech industry. You know, where companies, at least they used to, put real money into these events. Nowadays, things are different with the disappearance of Comdex. From my own point of view, the disappearance of the Seabolt Seminars, which was very unfortunate. That was a very high-end publishing seminar that gradually went away. Would you explain really, to our listeners exactly what yeah. that is? Well, the Seabolt Seminars were these uh, very high-end publishing seminars that were sort of in the digital technology industry as it relates to publishing, this was the event to be at. It was the event to introduce products at. It was the event to go learn about the topic. And what happened over a period of about, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years, it went from being the premier event in this field to not existing. And then there's Comdex. Comdex used to be the biggest computer trade show in the United States. It was the show to introduce either professional or consumer technology at what happened in Vegas every fall. And uh, it pretty much vanished. Interesting note, both Siebold Seminars and Comdex ended up being owned by the same company that essentially flushed them into the toilet. But the point I want to make about this as it relates to the paranormal stuff is, is are any of these guys actually earning a living? I'll yeah. tell you a story, David. And by the way, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And back in the late 60s, Jim Mosley invested a ton of money to sponsor a UFO convention in New York City. This in was New York City. In really? New York City, first class, okay? Everything was first class. He threw out a lot of money. We had a pretty decent attendance. I was working with Jim at the time, so it shows you I am an aging baby boomer. <laughs> and without going into specifics, of course, I'm 300 years old, ladies and gentlemen. I didn't want to say that. Anyway, so now you know the truth. Anyway, I have this picture of the closet that's getting younger. That's why I look older. But I see. <laughs> Jim threw out lots of money. You can tell us a story. I don't know if we'll do it on this interview or not. And in the end, he lost a ton of money doing it. Yeah. As yeah. well attended as this convention was, major hall, major promotion, TV, radio, newspapers, everything, he lost money. And it went to show that in the UFO realm, there are conventions all over the place. MUFON has them. There are magazines that cover the subject. But I think if you ask Bill Burns at UFO Magazine, I'm sure the magazine is earning him money, but he's not rolling in it. I'm sure if you ask the people who sponsor those conventions if they're making any money, and they will tell you, they may get by, they may suffer a loss. It's more a hobby. And people can earn livings from their hobbies, but I think that this is all about the marginalization of this topic as far as the mass media goes and the fact that how many people want to tell their friends, hey, I'm going to a UFO conference this weekend. I want to tag along. It's that whole social stigma associated with this topic that I have to tell you, Gene, in my own life, a few people that I know have sent me emails saying, why are you doing this? Why are you jeopardizing your career? Why are you coming out and speaking about these experiences? Don't you know that no one's going to hire you? I, I'm very well known for being one of the better teachers in the high-tech industry. And, and uh, at that Seabold seminar, I used to be the top draw Photoshop instructor for them. I have packed halls with four or 500 people at a time. But now I'm being told that if I want to teach, even being involved with this show is going to get in the way of it. And that I'm going to find it's going to be harder to be able to 
act in the professional world uh, because of my interest in this topic. And, you know, I, I, this is something that I, I kind of struggle with every day. Like, what do I do? Do I pull away from this? Do I not talk about these topics? I, I find a hard time considering that in that I believe that the range of things that I've experienced, and we've only talked about a couple of them on the show, you know, really briefly. Well, we had that one episode about the Caracas event. There's been a bunch of other stuff I haven't talked about, Gene, and part of the reason is that I'm cautious. I'm, I'm concerned about what the long-term ramifications are of talking about this stuff as far as being able to earn a living. This is a huge issue, and I think that I don't know what the answer is at this point. I do know that these things have happened to me, and I feel compelled to speak about them. I, I want to understand what's going on here. I want to know what's underneath of this stuff. What am I going to do, not talk about it? I, I don't live my life that way. I'll tell you this. Years ago, I was working as a mainstream news director for a suburban Philadelphia radio station. At the same mm -hmm. time, I was involved in the UFO field. I even had a magazine out on the subject. And I'll tell you, I don't think I suffered at that point. I think today it's reached a point where you can be a convicted felon and somehow benefit from it. Oh, it's man. that kind of crazy society, this cult yeah. of personality. I don't think it hurts. But we're going to see what's happened to one of the most unusual, fascinating personalities in the UFO field, Jim Mosley. Right after uh -huh. we tell you, you're in the Paracast. I'm feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, we're very happy to be talking with Jim Mosley, the editor of Saucer Smear. And for those who didn't hear the very first episode of the show, and a lot of ground has been covered in the past six months, Jim, before I ask you a few key questions, can you tell our listeners, what is Saucer Smear all about? Well, I try to keep up with uh, the current news about UFOs, oh, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, paranormal things, uh, just anything that interests me. It comes out every month or so, and incidentally, could I give the mailing address? Uh, Please go ahead. Yes, okay. It's P.O. Box 1709, Key West, two words, Key West, Florida, 33041. It's also on the net, but I'd much rather hear from people by mail. It's also a lot more fun, but we should also mention...
mention that Jim, over all these years, has never acquired a personal computer, even though he's dealing in cutting-edge subjects, as it were. Is there a reason why you never got into the computer game? Yeah, because I have no talent whatsoever for anything <laughs> mechanical or anything uh, remotely resembling uh, the Internet. And rather than uh, drive myself crazy over it, uh, I decided just to skip it. And it's worked out quite well. I might add that uh, recently a new fellow has started contributing to Saucer Smear, and he is on the net in such a way, I guess it's part of his job, that it doesn't seem to bother him to uh, save all kinds of stuff uh, for my magazine, which he mails to me. And in the last several months, I've had an easier time than ever, because even though I'm not on the net indirectly, I am, and I uh, get all the advantages, I think, uh, without any of the disadvantages. <laughs> I think that makes sense. For a lot of us, you're still also using an electric typewriter to produce yes, your I publication. Am. Yes, yeah. I am. Uh huh. These must be antiques, by the way, right oh, now. Oh man. Yes. Imagine you trade those in at the end of your days, and you could and maybe your heirs would become millionaires over no, just the typewriters. No, I don't think so. Uh, there's one place in Miami that still sells and repairs them. They have very little value. They're worth less now than they were new. I think. Yeah, I would think so. I, I don't think that the typewriter repairs a growth field either. No, no, it isn't. <laughs> Usually it's typewriter, throw out and buy another one. Well, they, of course, don't make them, but you can get a reconditioned one, I suppose. I, I've got three or four of them, and they still work all right. I actually yeah. have one here, believe it or not. I have a Smith Corona from circa 1988 or something like that. And I think one day I might, I don't know what I'll do with it. Maybe I'll send it to you, Jim, because you collect <laughs> typewriters. I should do that. Hey, a lot of people wonder about saucer smear, and I think part of it is because because you have this very dry sense of humor that David and I just love. Are you really seriously interested in the subject? Oh, absolutely. Why would I bother with it for a period of over 50 years if I wasn't seriously interested? It's just that uh, my approach is like that. If I can't enjoy myself and try to induce my readers to enjoy what they're reading, then it's just not something that I would like to do. I, it's just my a unique approach and uh, uh, the rather small band of people that subscribe to the print version of Smear seem to enjoy what I'm doing. I might add that there was a poll recently by um, a um, man in Canada named Paul Kimball. He's some sort of a documentary maker, apparently quite successful, and he is a nephew of Stanton Friedman, the very famous UFO uh, investigator. Mm. So this guy is not a flake. Uh, he's on the net quite regularly with blogs, uh, whatever they are. He, he goes on at great length about anything that interests him. Anyway, a couple of months ago, he ran a poll on his website uh, as to the best UFO magazine. Uh, he only named the, the ones that are well-known, which is three others beside mine. And uh, Smear came out the winner in this rather unscientific poll, so I was rather <laughs> pleased about that. Mm, there's a lot to be said for that. I want to ask uh, you a couple of <laughs> questions that maybe you have not talked about too much, except maybe privately, and that is... You've had a few experiences over your lifetime that haven't been exactly normal, and maybe for the next few minutes you can tell us about them. Well, yeah, I'd like to just start out by saying
saying, first of all, I don't think the UFOs come from another planet. It's, that in itself is a long story as to why. But I think they are part of a realm of what we might call paranormal events of, of different kinds that go beyond our present scientific understanding. And, and beyond that, I can't explain it. If I knew how to explain it, I'd be unique, and I'd be glad to tell you anything that I know. But all I can say is that there is a psychic realm, a paranormal realm, whatever you want to call it. George Hansen, the parapsychologist, claims that uh, some of this can be described as the work of an entity known as the trickster. Are you familiar with that? I'm familiar with the term, yes. Yeah, well, that is, I suppose, the theme of a very long book he wrote uh, a couple of years ago on parapsychology. So what would the trickster be, uh, and what would be his motive? I have no idea. And when I say he, I certainly don't mean a person. I mean some kind of a force or entity. It seems that, uh, to put it briefly, uh, something wants to play with our minds, sometimes in a harmless way and sometimes in a frightening way. I've never had any frightening experiences. I've had some peculiar ones, and uh, they don't seem to have any explanation, but the key thing to make clear to you and, and your listeners is that uh, there's no proof. I mean, you can choose to take my word for what I'm going to tell you that I've had happen to me, or you could choose not to. There's just uh, no way of proving it. And the second point is interesting. These things, including UFOs, occur so in frequently uh, when you think of uh, all the parts of the country and all the years, let's say, going 60 years back, sure, there have been thousands and thousands of UFO sightings, but if you think of it in a different way, it's a very infrequent occurrence, and so are psychic things. So my point is, if it were interfering in any way with national security, if it was something that we had to deal with in any emergency sense, uh, then it would be a whole different thing. People would pay attention to it, and science would get interested, and the government would be worried about it, and many things would be happening. It would become a part of the mainstream. But as it is, it's interesting. It's, to me at least, real, uh, but it's not important in the sense of everyday life. But, but do you understand what I'm trying to say? Hmm. So, uh, are, yeah, well, does that mean then that the government does not in any way have a program to discredit this stuff or to essentially conceal information, Jim? No, I don't think so. I, there's a lot of the more conservative people in the field that don't think there's any government plot. But uh, there's also government bungling and government disinterest and distortion and all kinds of things. That's but, the uh, normal way government works, though. Yeah, well, that's, that's it. So when it occurs in the UFO field, the people that are on this, they look what they're doing, but you could uh, you could see how inept they were about something important uh, like the uh, flooding in Louisiana uh, last year, and all all that kind of thing. Uh, they make a lot of mistakes, and I really don't think uh, that they're interested in saucers. And if um, 
they were, you'd hear more about it right now. Think of how hefty we are right now about security. And if there are unknown objects that they believe are wandering through our skies, uh, certainly uh, they'd be trying to do something about it, especially at a point like this when they're absolutely paranoid about security. So what I get out of that is that it's a non-subject as far as the government is concerned. You just don't hear anything about it. the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Jim Mosley. He's the editor and publisher of Saucer Smear, a very unusual publication because unlike many others that cover ufology, it's not a collection of sightings, but occasionally a collection of sightings. Occasionally he does cover sightings. It's mostly, however, talking about the people and the investigators and the things they do and the things they believe in. That's the exception. And Jim is telling us so far that he believes something is going on, but maybe it doesn't interact with us enough to attract government attention. At the same time, Jim, now with that preamble, what sort of experiences have you had? Well, um, there are two that involve uh, an ordinary deck of cards, okay? Years ago, as a form of solitaire, I used to uh, pick up a, a deck when I felt like it and uh, try to guess the cards without looking at them. Precognition is what that would be called. And uh, making a long story short, I did what I consider to be just marginally better than the law of averages. What I did was uh, if I got a card right for number only, I gave myself one point. If it was right for uh, color and number, it was two points. If it was completely right uh, uh, all the way, to four points. I mean, it's easy to understand that each is twice as hard as the last. So on that basis, you should really get only four points out of the whole deck. I would get 10 or 12 or 15 or something, uh, uh, which would would probably mean that I'm, I'm remembering the cards that are already out, so I'm not going to guess them again, you see. Or it might mean that I have some borderline little uh, thing of ESP going or, or precognition. Well, the point of telling it is that at one time it worked out differently. I had been off this for quite a while, and, and one night, uh, again, being here by myself and bored or whatever, I picked up the deck and I started to go through it, and naturally you're getting most of them wrong, even if you get a few right. And uh, to that extent, it's rather uh, frustrating and boring. So I start to go through the deck, and the four, first five or six or seven cards, I get completely wrong as usual. And then not a voice or anything mystic, but just a feeling came over me, uh, which was expressed in words in my mind, which was, why am I wasting my time guessing at these cards when I could just as well know what they all are? Hmm. And I started to guess 
uh, again uh, for the next card. And it seems to me that I got about five out of seven right for suit and number. Perfect. Now, if you just take that as a run of seven, I have no idea the odds are in the millions or billions. It just can't be done. And uh, so then I stopped for a second. I thought to myself again, just uh, I thought in my mind, I'm dealing with something I don't understand. I got nervous and I couldn't do it anymore. Just for those few seconds, I opened some kind of a window or whatever you might call it, and I thought about it afterwards. What really happened was I saw the card, physically saw it in my mind, in my third eye, if you want to call it. It appeared in each of the cases where I was right. Just for a, a fraction of a second, the actual uh, card was there. So if you see the card in your mind, you don't have to guess anymore. And you see it, and then you say to yourself, such and such, and, and then you turn it over, and that's what it is. And I never can make that connection again, but I know from that, at least for me, that there is such a connection, and it can happen, and it's obviously un unreliable, and maybe some people can do that kind of thing much better than I, but I, I know that it's possible, and it's just something that means something to me, not necessarily to anybody else. Jim, did you ever try to reclaim the feeling? This happened, what, in the 1960s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. as I said, I, I tried many times. I, I'd pick up the deck and say, why should I guess at these cards when I know what they all are? And nothing would happen. <laughs> and mm. you, I can't make it happen just by saying it. I could never set it up again. One of a time thing. Do you think this happens to a lot of people that they have this once in a lifetime or twice in well, a lifetime experience? I, I think I think a lot of people have occasional things happen to them that they can't explain. And unless their mindset is in that direction, they either ignore them or just don't uh, pay much attention to them and don't even write it down or give it any importance. And then there's other people who are uh, extreme skeptics who insist that they've never had any such experience in their life. And indeed, if they had one, they'd either suppress it or lie about it or forget about it. So uh, I, I don't know. It depends how open you are to these things. It, it depends on factors that we simply don't understand. But you were open for at least that five, ten minute period. What else has happened to you? You said no, no, that was no, no. That was a that was a period of just a few seconds. Okay, so it was like just long enough to pull up just each card. Just long enough to to say to myself with those cards, as I said, and then after just a short run, it stopped happening. I wasn't getting the right anymore, and the feeling was gone. Yeah. So some people have fifteen minutes of fame. You had ten seconds. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, then I had the, another incident. Uh, the one I just told happened quite a few years ago. Uh, another one more recently, I believe, with the same deck of cards. And this is very weird, too. When I buy a deck of cards, the first thing I do is throw out the joker. I think some decks have two jokers, so if there's two, I throw them both out. They just 
annoy me because there's nothing that I do with the deck that uh, involves a joker. I don't need it. So out it goes. Okay. Uh, there's this deck of cards that I still have here now that I've had at least 20 or 30 years. And I can only presume with 99% certainty that I threw out the joker when I uh, first got the deck. Well, one time a few months ago, I picked up the deck, again, maybe thinking of doing the uh, uh, psychic routine that I was just describing. I'm not even sure why I picked it up. But I saw something very peculiar. The uh, cards were all facing the same way as they should be, but in the middle of the deck, facing the opposite way, was the Joker. Now, I find that rather uh, impossible, uh, but uh, added to the intrigue there is the question of whether or not that might uh, be some kind of a crazy message. I consider myself uh, uh, the Joker in the UFO field. Uh, sort of uh, to a certain extent in the fact that I don't take things too seriously. Maybe uh, some playful entity is trying to uh, point that out to me, that that's what I am. I'm, I'm the Joker. Anyway, uh, the card is in the deck when there's no way that it uh, could be there, and uh, it's in a position as if to tell me a message. So uh, mm. what that means, I also don't know. Jim, do you have friends visit the U there in Key West? Very, very seldom, uh, really. I'm rather isolated here. My mm -hmm. daughter is around. In fact, she was here a few minutes ago. She comes in and out of town rather uh, arbitrarily, and uh, I'm never sure when she's going to be here. And I have occasionally visitors, but mainly I'm pretty much by myself these days. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if that jokester might have been a visiting friend who knew of your predilection for jokers. And... <laughs> yeah, well, I... I wondered if it was my daughter, Betty is her name, Yeah. and I don't think it could be, but uh, I'll tell you what I do think. I left this out. After this happened, I told her about it, just as I finished telling you about it, and, uh, and then uh, oh, a couple of weeks or so later, I picked up the deck again, and the same thing had happened. Well, the second time, undoubtedly, that was her. She uh, insisted she didn't do it, but but I would be quite sure that she did. The first time was a mystery. The second time was a simple case of, of her hearing my description of what happened and then just duplicating it. That's what I think. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
There's no mystery to saying this is the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Jim Mosley, editor-publisher of Saucer Smear. Jim, give that address one more time to... Oh, I don't mind doing that at all. Uh, P.O. Box 1709, Key West, Florida. Two words, Key West, Florida, 33041. You know, Jim brought up this interesting idea that uh, these entities if they exist or not from other planets, but I think Jim is implying that perhaps these might be things of an interdimensional nature. And Jim, uh, we've talked with various guests on the show about exactly this topic, the idea that whatever these things are, that they're not coming from other planets, but indeed are being sourced from alternate dimensions or even an alternate universe that exists coexists with ours. I think the question there, though, if these things were coming in here and, and messing with our minds, what benefit would they have? Would, would a creature or an entity with technology advanced enough to do this use that technology to entertain themselves? That's a very good question. You're asking what is the motive, and uh, I haven't got the faintest idea. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't seem to uh, make a whole lot of sense. Uh, Another aspect of it is poltergeist events. What rational reason would there be for some entity to frighten or entertain people by throwing things or strange smells or motion of doors with nobody touching them? And all that minor nonsense that supposedly happens occasionally in the houses that are allegedly haunted. I have no idea what it means, and I don't think anybody can I wonder about the inherent energy in human emotion. I've wondered about this topic because one of the things associated with a lot of ghost activity or UFO encounters is a tremendous amount of fear. And uh, I, I wonder if, if there's some way for an entity to feed off of that fear. I, I think that that's yeah, probably... I've heard, uh, I've heard yeah. that uh, our emotions cause uh, these things in some peculiar way, yes. Well, I, I, it, it's certainly uh, potentially plausible. I've also wondered, guys, if uh, human life on the planet Earth, in, t in terms of its real meaning, ends up really being about entertaining the rest of the universe. I've wondered if perhaps the trials and tribulations of the silliness of humanity is nothing more than the ultimate reality TV show for the rest of the universe. We certainly seem to be incredibly self-destructive, yet we're capable of such greatness. I mean, just in terms of what we've done in, in the realm of music. Music has to be one of the most beautiful things humans have ever created, but then you have that then countered by our incredible willingness to destroy ourselves, our environment. You know, I, I wonder if, if perhaps that's not fodder for other creatures who look at us and go, what will the silly humans do today? Well, I never heard it put quite that way, but it's something to think about, yeah. <laughs> I wish we were more straightforward than that, because the other thing about this, guys, is that, you know, Jim, you're talking about how these UFO encounters and these paranormal episodes are relatively rare. But at the same time, there seem to be certain people, and we've recently had on the show someone who has uh, apparently had a long history of these episodes. If these things are rare, why are certain people uh, 
so subject to them? I mean, what well, is that? Uh, that's it. They're relatively rare. There are indeed people who seem to have some kind of a power some of the time, or maybe all of the time. Uh, Uri Geller comes to mind, uh, and I'm sure you know who he is, and oh, sure. listeners would also. And I wonder very much about him. Uh, it was a long and complicated feud that uh, Geller had with James Randi, the skeptic and the uh, a magician, who I also know very well. And uh, years ago, they were suing each other over a period of time, and very uh, complicated things happened. And I, I got to know Geller a little bit, and I would guess that he has psychic powers sometimes. I, I can't imagine that as a kid he was in Israel where he was born and he was thinking, well, I, should I be a doctor or a lawyer or a psychic? Uh, there must have been uh, something that pushed him in that direction. Now, he was into magic before he got into the psychic field, so again, maybe everything he does is fake. Now, my guess is that he has powers, but perhaps he doesn't even know himself when they're going to come into play, and the rest of the time he faces it. That's mm. the bottom line. I don't think he necessarily faces it all the time. Uh, and that might be true of mediums and, and many others. They've, they've got a backup plan. And uh, when the real thing doesn't work, uh, the audience won't know the difference because they, mm. they do it in a different way. But of course, once someone is shown to have a propensity for basically misrepresenting the truth, once someone is shown to be faking it, even some of the time, they have to imagine that all of their credibility is going to come into question. Well, see, that is uh, an exceedingly interesting point, and let me just make it. Nobody is going to get seriously interested in the psychic as long as it uh, is apparent that sometimes it's faked. The average person isn't going to have the patience to uh, differentiate. They're going to say, well, I saw this, this, and this right. was a fake, and now he's coming to me with another thing, and with that history, he's insisting that this other thing now, the new one, is not fake. I'm not going to believe that, and, and mm -hmm. that's uh, you know, a perfectly reasonable point of view, and I think that's how this mystery keeps itself. Yeah. People are not going to differentiate that carefully. They're, they're going to get teed off and they're going to say, that's the end of it. This guy is a fake and they'll walk away. I have the feeling that maybe a very few of the UFO contactees had some sort of genuine experience at one time. It may not necessarily be with entities from another planet, yeah. another dimension. Something real happened one or more times and they felt that glow of 15 minutes of fame, whatever, and people wanted to know more and eventually they succumbed to the temptation and made up stories. But there is a core reality. Of course, as you say, once you discredit the experience with fakery, how can you believe the rest of it? Incidentally, a very funny point comes to mind. You probably know that on the news, uh, they have this new idea that they're going to uh, include uh, 12 
planets in the solar system. Right, three new planets. planets. And so suddenly we have 12 planets in the solar system. Now, Gene, where did we first hear that there were 12 planets in the solar system? You don't know. George Adamski insisted on that. Uh, Only trouble was he said 12 inhabited planets, and I hardly think that (laughs) these are all inhabited, but I wish old George was here now, and I'd pat him on the back and say, you know, you were half right. Uh, I think it's just absolutely amazing. Why 12? 12 is a mystic number, as you know, right? 12 apostles, 12 months, and probably 12 and many other things. Uh, and, and yet here we end up with 12 planets. I, uh, there's something there that uh, is rather amusing to me, and I just finished writing that up yesterday for the new issue of Sauter Smear. So we can mention that. By the way, I have to mention, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and my very, very close friend, Jim Mosley, editor and publisher of Saucer Smear, whom I've known three quarters of my life. Can you believe that? Amazing. I hardly believe that. Right. (laughs) It's almost like yesterday, Jim, that we first talked on the telephone. It's almost like yesterday. In fact, I think it was. We went through a time warp. Yes, yes, it was yesterday. (laughs) Well, you know, guys, I've always wondered about the idea of perceived capabilities versus real capabilities. In the case of fortune tellers or seers who sit down with someone and proceed to tell them what's going to happen in the future, I've always theorized that what's really going on there, well, in the majority of cases, I think they're just making stuff up. But for those who are considered somewhat prescient, I think what's really happening is that these people have some sort of psychic abilities. And what they essentially do when they're sitting there with someone is they they essentially tap into their mind and they figure out what it is that the person wants to hear. And they're actually potentially using real psychic abilities to do that. And then when they tell the person where they perceive their future is headed or what will happen in the future, that person says, gee, you know, they seem to know a lot about me. They seem to really understand what my concerns were. I think they're really able to see into my future when in, ca- when in fact what's really going on is that they're getting an accurate psychic read of the person. So, I, you know, in the case of like Yuri Geller, I've read a lot about him. I've looked for years into, uh, into his case, and it seems like maybe there's a little bit of ability there, but a lot of it really is just fabricated. A lot of it is essentially nonsense. Well, I don't know this time to tell it, but I met uh, Geller once privately with his family in, in mm-hmm. Miami, and he did one of his psychic tricks for me individually, uh, which he's done in other cases for other people. And I, I won't go into the details, but I mean, 
If it happened the way that I very carefully remember it having happened, I haven't any idea how he did it. I've told it to people, uh, magicians and others who might have a clue as to how to solve this, and they all say you're remembering it wrong because that's the way you want to remember it, or if you're telling the truth exactly as it happened, then it couldn't have happened. So uh, something there, perhaps. Uh, maybe what happened? Uh, well, what happened? Uh, it'll yeah. take two or three minutes to set it up. Please do. Go for uh, it. We were, okay. I thought we were near the end of the thing here. But uh, I was sitting at a table with uh, Geller, his wife, his brother-in-law, who always travels with him, and his two children. So whatever, four or five of us. And uh, we were talking about Randy because, as I said, I was uh, cooperating with him for a while, and his feud was Randy, which is another story. Anyway, all of a sudden he says, Jim, walk with me, uh, follow me over to the wall for a moment. So I had a feeling he's going to do something strange. So we walk over to the wall of the room. This is a, a big uh, restaurant in a in a fancy hotel in Miami, and it's uh, maybe 20 paces to the wall. Oh, and he has with him a spoon from the place setting uh, at the table. And... Uh, so he has the spoon in his hand, and he's holding it at the very bottom, the end that's furthest from the spoon part. And uh, then he takes the index finger of his other hand and just touches it very lightly up near the spoon, okay, near the other end, uh, at, a, at a certain point there, where even in a normal spoon there's a slight bend there, I think. And he touches it and nothing happens. And I uh, almost laughed because I could see he was trying to do something and it wasn't working. So he kind of frowns for a second and then he touches it again. And this time, whatever it is, works and the spoon starts bending all by himself now remember he's touching it at the far end he's not touching the part that's bending so we walk swiftly back to the table he puts it in the middle of the table and I look you know I was not a, a true believer I'm watching like a hawk everything he's doing as far as I can watch he puts it in the middle of the table and I look at everybody's hands They're nowhere near the spoon sitting there and it just keeps bending all by itself. Once he triggered it, whatever he did to get it started, it kept bending until it became a 90-degree uh, angle, and then it stopped. And afterwards, he gave, and now I thought it would be some chemical thing on the spoon. There's all kinds of things you can think of. But he gave me the spoon. He autographed it with a uh, magic marker, and I still have it. And uh, I never bothered to have any chemical tests made because it, it occurred to me, why bother to spend money on this? If there was anything I could learn by making tests, he wouldn't have given me the spoon, assuming it's the same spoon. And, and so that is what happened, and uh, it just doesn't make sense. It appears to be a trick because of the structured way he did it. It was done just at the moment he wanted to do it and in the way that he wanted to do it. And, and that's it. Whatever it was... That's what happened. You know, I, I have to respond. Uh, what, as you were describing that to me, I thought to myself, and I'm going to, I'm going to sound Jewish when I say this. Is which, this uh, Dave? This, or I can't tell is, your voices. <laughs> this is, is this? David. This is this is David, Jim.
Okay, the intellectual one is David, I see, and Gene is, oh, well, go ahead. Okay. As you see, what? after all these years, he still <laughs> does what he does. <laughs> what occurred to me, Jim, while you were telling that story is that it would seem strange to me that if someone had real abilities that they could do such a thing, to take that power and bend spoons with it, Oy, such a waste. If you if you really can do such stuff, and you want to show the world you can have a, a, some kind of a positive effect with these capabilities, it seems to me like doing things like bending spoons is just well, it's, it's gratuitous. Well, it's, it's another example of a trivial things. Uh, mm -hmm. Whether a spoon can bend or not bend is uh, certainly not of great importance to mankind except philosophically. It's just one of these minor things. I, uh, just apart from Geller, I knew a, a woman, uh, a, a German immigrant, you might say, who uh, has some money and travels around and does different uh, things to entertain herself. And for a while, she got into spoon bending. And I watched her a couple of times, and I'm willing to say that she could do it. And what she claimed and what others have claimed is that when you have this power come over you for whatever reason, and there is a period of just a few seconds, sort of like uh, the few seconds in my first story when right. I was able to do something psychic. And in those very few seconds, and I have no idea, it sounds like it couldn't be more than five or ten seconds at the most, the uh, metal becomes uh, soft. And so you can do these things if you do them quickly and they're done and then the metal goes back to the way it was before. Now that sounds pretty crazy but I'm willing to uh, think that that is possible. I certainly can't do it but a lot of people can and that is how they say they do it. The metal gets soft. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you one thing before we break for our final section with Jim Mosley. I once dated a woman back in the 1970s during this period when I was single between two marriages and she told me she had this experience that is very common among people. She was watching Yuri Geller on television and a spoon bent in her hand while he was doing his thing on TV. What can really? I say? Sure. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Jim Mosley, editor-publisher of Saucer Smear, and you're getting, I would call it, another side of Jim today. <laughs> kind of a side that maybe you didn't expect. There's a lot of seriousness going on here, trying to understand strange things. Now, you have this encounter with Yuri Geller where the spoon bent, and we don't know what happened. You have these two encounters with the playing cards. Anything else? 
Well, there was another time uh, when I had a uh, UFO sighting that was very peculiar, and and uh, I've had a couple, and none of none of them are absolutely certain, even in my own mind. But this is what has seemed to happen in this one. I had an evening way back in the early 50s when I first got interested in this, uh, an evening with nothing to do, and I thought, well, for once, I'd just uh, stand outside, it was at night, and watch the sky for uh, flying saucers. And I, uh, oh, this was in, in Miami, uh, and it's so long ago that the sky was much clearer than it is these days. So you could really see what appeared to be millions of stars. I mean, it was just beautiful. I don't think you see that over a city anymore, mm-hmm. although I spend very little time looking. But anyway, this time, I'm looking at this guy, and uh, time passes, and I'm thinking, you know, this is pretty much a, a waste of time. But then I got also thinking the stars, as you see them, appear to be in groups of three, four, five, or six that are approximately the same brightness, and uh, that's how, how, how they uh, appear to be, whether they're really near each other or not, but you notice them because of the similarity and the amount of brightness. And then I got thinking, uh, I looked at a group of what I think, if I remember correctly, was five stars. I said to myself, you know, if there was a UFO, if there was a flying saucer up there, and it stood still and had the same color as a star, you wouldn't know it was a saucer. It would just disguise itself as a star, and you wouldn't wouldn't know the difference. And then I, if for no reason, again, not a voice, just uh, amusing myself over this period of time, I said, what if that particular star should be a saucer? I picked out one in this group of five. And as I thought that, it took off <laughs> in almost a straight line, a slight trajectory downward like a meteor would have. But that would be very odd that a meteor would apparently originate just in that spot at that moment when I had that particular thought. And the thing went down and disappeared in a couple of seconds behind a building. It was gone, and I looked back, and there was a uh, star missing from the formation. Hmm. Now, that can be self-hypnosis. It can be a lot of things. But the one thing that is interesting, if it is true, that could be a signal to me personally. I don't think anybody else was standing out there looking at that star at that moment. It's a signal that, yes, there really is something going on. So that's what I think happened. And the skeptic is perfectly uh, reasonable to say, uh, you know, it didn't happen that way. So that's my story. Hmm. Well, ultimately, it all comes down to personal anecdotes. Uh, well, it comes, yes, unprovable yeah. things, and yeah. that's why uh, that's why there's so little scientific attention. They just don't have, have the patience for it. Well, or you just can't apply the scientific method to something that happens in an instant or that happens well, even well, in a minute it, or two. It has to be reproducible under right. controlled conditions, and right. that is not true of any of the things that we've talked about. Right, right. Well, really, I think people would look at for example the UFO phenomenon and a lot of people would say this has a lot of the characteristics of a religious belief system that you essentially take certain things for granted you have beliefs in things and uh, this this influences your worldview and makes you think a certain way uh, you know it, it's very frustrating to me that people have I suspect a lot of legitimate 
legitimately unusual experiences. And uh, the minute they even bring them up, people say, well, you know what? Uh, I don't believe you. You can't prove it. And, of course, there's so many things that are wrapped up in reality that are not provable but just continue to be true. And and in the end, uh, I think, Jim, what you said is, is very relevant. I think that I sometimes, well, I, I believe that a lot of these experiences are in, intended for the individual, and uh, perhaps that's their meaning, that they, they occur to someone. It's almost like having some kind of a, uh, a shamanistic experience where it's all about changing the individual to empower the individual to then go out and change the world, but that you can't really, I mean, look, the biblical story of Moses going up and getting the tablets from God, I mean, who knows what really happened, or even if there was a Moses, but ultimately, there was nobody up on the mount with him, he was there alone, and, uh, you know, was he having some kind of a crazy hallucination? Did he eat some psilocybin mushrooms and go up and hallucinate that God, you know, like that scene from the Ten Commandments, that, that big firearm came down and slammed into the tablets. I mean, I've heard theories that 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 fire that came and etched the tablets was a laser. I mean, who the hell knows? Of course, at that point, one can say, look at the Bible, show me proof of anything in there being a physical reality. Show me anything that has actually happened where we have verifiable proof, even down to the existence of Jesus. There's a huge yeah, I, debate I, going uh, I agree with you completely, uh, actually. I, I certainly do. Incidentally, Leap, I read it the other day. They're back at it again. There's somebody that thinks he has the exact location of Noah's Ark. Uh, you see that <laughs> where is it now? Well, it's, it's about where it's supposed to be, on Mount Ararat or whatever. But uh, it's still very unclear whether it's something natural or hmm. something artificial. And they're talking about expeditions there uh, in the future. But there's a, a political problem, I believe. I can't recall just what it is, but it's on the border of something with something. And there's a lot of reasons why they've never explored the mountain properly. Isn't there always I, a political I, problem, though? Always. <laughs> I, I don't think it's impossible that there could be an ark, but certainly it didn't uh, contain everything it should have. Don't we know of about somewhere between two and three million species of uh, animals, including insects and all the rest of them? And I hardly think that Noah had time to uh, round up all of those. So uh, maybe he, he just had a, two sheep and two lamb and two goats and something and got an ark going. There's no reason that it couldn't have happened. Well, he could have yeah. definitely been very selective about his choice. He only picked the animals he liked. The ones you could eat, the ones who serve you as pets. Yes, yes. I would think so. I think that would be the yeah, only I way. Don't, I don't know that they let ferrets on that uh, on the ark. Mm. <laughs> But anyway, How about I'm, kangaroos? I think that would be good. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a hardcore agnostic, but I don't think it's, you know, I wouldn't go crazy if they found an ark, you know. It wouldn't, wouldn't bother me any. It would be very interesting. I think in the end, if we had the real history of humanity, if we had the book of what had really happened, how we really got here, what what purpose we really have, I think, it's something that none of us would expect. I think it would catch all of us off guard. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's so much missing from our prehistory 
uh, that we'll only find out very gradually because uh, anything older than just a very few thousand years will probably leave no trace. And the thing it's that bothers me, Jim, is that we can't even agree on what happened last week. You see all the talking yeah. heads on the 24-hour cable news channels, and they never agree what happened last week. How are we to know what happened a thousand years ago, 2,000 and more? It strikes me as an almost insoluble problem. That's right. I think that's a good way to end it. Jim, tell our listeners one more time how they can get a copy of Saucer Smear. Well, they can write in uh, to Saucer Smear, P.O. Box 1709, Key West, Florida. 33041. And thank you very much, my very good friend, Jim Mosley on the Paracast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Keep Jim. Keep your eye on the sky. <laughs> we have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295, or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Never know what's going to happen next. So it's card tricks, huh? <laughs> and the Yuri Geller story, interesting stuff. The stuff I've read about Geller, and I have to tell you, as far as Randy goes, I think Randy is a fascinating cat who's done some decent work debunking some stuff, but I think the problem with James Randy is that he can't be truly objective. He actually has an agenda just the way that the people he goes up against have an agenda. I think if Randy was presented with genuine proof of something paranormal, he would simply ignore it. Or he'd and, freak and, and die on yeah. the spot of a heart attack as he's getting on in years. He's older than Jim. Okay. Really? Yeah, he's older than Jim. Okay. He must be around. Jim is 75 this month, and I would assume that Randy's probably around 80. Well, so I would think that maybe the real experience for James the Amazing Randy would put this guy into the box for good. And I really perhaps. wouldn't want to confront him with that because we have to respect yeah. the elderly. You know, right. we're going to have a chance in the next few minutes to meet a very interesting person. His name is Royce J. Myers III. Now, maybe that name doesn't fall smoothly from your tongue, but <laughs> his website, ufowatchdog.com, does. Good site. Good site. And this site has two features. 
that are just incredible, I think. One is a Hall of Fame, the people who deserve recognition in the UFO field for doing good work. But the larger section is the Hall of Shame. Shame. Oh, yes. Some of our least favorite characters are prominently featured in that Hall of Shame. So we're going to find out next with Royce Myers III about both on the Paracast. So, Royce, tell us, after you built the UFOwatchdog.com, how did you come up with something called the Hall of Shame? It actually originally started where I was on an email list, and somebody had taken a, a poll called the UFO Nuisance Poll, or something <laughs> like that. I can't remember the exact name of it. And I thought, wow, that's a great idea. And they had taken a poll where people were voting for this person or that person. And uh, so I thought, wow, that's great. I wonder how long it's going to last, though, because, you know, it's going to be an email and people forget about it. And so I decided that. And when I first got involved in all this, there wasn't, I, I was lost. I was very naive when I first got into this stuff, just like a lot of people are. And so I decided I think the best thing to do here would be to put up all this information so people had readily, it was readily available for folks. They can go and see it. So I put the hall up, and uh, I just thought that it would be good for folks to have so they could see where, you know, and, and a lot of this is just my own experiences and what I found, but hopefully they would get some insight into who was good, who was not so good. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to give folks some direction. And so I put the hall up, and in hopes that they could draw from my experiences where I had I'd been to some UFO conventions, I'd met some of these people, and I'd done some digging into what they were really about, so that when they first got involved, like if they had a sighting or whatever else, they would have a resource where they could go to to see what was what. On the Paracast, we're talking to Royce Myers III. He is, I guess we'll call him the chief cook, bottle washer, wet master, whatever, of UFOwatchdog.com. And we're talking about the creation of the den of iniquity of UFO research, the people who have earned a place in the Hall of Shame. Now, what criterion do you use to put people in this exalted position? It's pretty black and white. You're either credible or you're not. I, I don't think I really have too much of a criteria for it in terms of, you know, if you start making claims and I start looking into said claims and find that said claims aren't as factual as you're presenting them, then you're going to wind up in there. Now, Royce, I've been looking at this uh, Hall of Shame, and I'm very uh, satisfied to see that there are certain characters on here who I would definitely say belong in here. Some of these people we've had on the show, Sean David Morton. Actually, I noticed you've, you've put a special place for him in hell, and, and that's ex extremely appropriate because the guy really is just a complete nutcase. And there's some other people on here. Now, the thing is, some of these people we've had on the show, and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm still on the fence about a couple of these people. Let me throw a name out to you, and I'm curious to know what the background behind your thoughts about, for example, Stephen Greer. What do you know about this guy? I think my, my personal take on Greer was when he first got started, and this happens to a lot of people that I've seen in this field, they get started off and they want to do something positive, but down the road somewhere, and it seems to me, that they get caught up in their own personal truth about things, and they begin they begin promoting it as the truth. Mm -hmm. And he's just made so many ridiculous and unsubstantiated claims 
and it's just silly. Some of the claims that he made were one that he had posted on his website and immediately pulled the next day when he started getting flack for it, was he claimed that a special forces military unit had used sarin nerve gas on some supposed ET underground base down in Colorado. Hmm. And, of course, that raised a lot of eyebrows, like, okay, where's your proof? And we had claims that people were being medevaced out of there and that this supposed attack had backfired. And you just hear claims like that that are completely unsubstantiable. And, you know, where does that leave you at? How does that make the person look, not only that person, but the whole unit? Because hmm. you, know, you guys know as well as I do that in this field, if one person speaks generally accepted that they're speaking for everybody. Really? I, hey, that's you, the way I mute a lot of times. Well, well, how do you mean by that? I mean, I, I hope, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that people like Michael Horn don't speak for anybody who thinks that UFOs are a legitimate phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, me too. But what happens <laughs> is, and this is just my own view, is that everybody gets clumped in to one big pile. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It, it's It's true. At least, at least from my, my viewpoint, it is because you say, you know, if you get involved in conversations with about UFOs, people will generally bring up hoaxers a lot of times, or they'll kind right. of laugh it off, or they'll ridicule, or they'll marginalize it, whatever. Right. And it's sad to see when you have people that are in the spotlight, they're in the limelight, and when they speak, a lot of people think they're speaking for everybody. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the way the way I put it is that these guys basically poison the pool for the rest of us. I mean, they they exactly. they, they take away from any kind of legitimate research. I mean, there, there's a couple of other names. I mean, for example, for years I've been interested in what's going on down in Mexico City, and the name that has been so closely associated with so much of the footage coming out of there is Jaime Mossan. Now, I see based on the stuff you've got on the Hall of Shame that Mossan has, has been involved with some stuff that I would definitely call questionable. At the same time, and this is where it gets a little murky for me, he's also been involved with some stuff that I think is really kind of interesting. So, I mean, how do you draw that line? Do you think, for example, and let's just take Mossan as a specific example. Sure. Do you think he's completely full of it? No, I don't think he's completely full of it. I think that he has some legitimate footage. The problem is is that he's gotten so wrapped up in some cases, from what I can see, that he, like, let's, let's just take this latest thing, this whole Jonathan Reed deal that right. I'm sure a lot of people know about. Right. Uh, he got involved with that case and just promoted it beyond its end and kept promoting it and kept promoting it in spite of the fact that this guy was exposed as a complete fraud. This uh, Dr. Jonathan Reed character. It's not even his real name. Hmm. And he claimed, Masson did, to have all of the scientific proof. And when this case started coming around and started coming full swing, I said, where's the proof? Nobody produced anything. Nothing. Not a shred of proof. And so I was left to wonder, why would a guy like Masson, and I met Jaime. I've talked to him. Oh, yeah. I, I sat down. I sat down. I was at a UFO convention down in Los Angeles a number of years ago. And he's a very nice, he's a nice guy. He really is. But when it comes down to some of this UFO stuff, I kind of start to wonder where exactly that guy is coming from. During the conversation that I had with him, and this is what he told me, and everybody knows Jaime's from, from Latin America, he's from Mexico, and English is a second language, and he speaks, his English is very good. You can understand what the guy's saying. So when we were talking, there was no language barrier there. He said this to me very, very clearly. And I asked him this a couple of times just to make sure I was hearing what he was saying because it was so outrageous. He told me to my face, he said, you know that stars in the sky are actually, get this, giant UFO motherships. 
And I, I was just, my jaw hit the floor. And I said, As in really? all stars in the sky? Yes. So really? I said, okay, what's your oh. proof for this? And he told me that, well, the stars move at night. Oh. And I said, do you ever hear of a thing called planetary rotation? <laughs> now, wait, he, you guys weren't, like, drinking some kind of no, weird no, no, no. This was. This was he no, swallowed no. the worm. You nope. shared the this worm. This was out. <laughs> this was out. On the convention floor, oh, where all yeah. the vendors were set up, that we had this conversation. Oh boy! Oh boy! And there was no mistaking what he told me. Absolutely none. That's a little out. None. And, I, and he didn't only tell it to me; he told it to, to several other people there that I'd overheard him having conversations with. So you're finding the inner lunatic fringe here. Oh, it's terrible. You know, they, that the, the first UFO conference, convention, whatever you'd like to call it, that I went to was just such an eye was such an eye opener for me because before this. You know, I get involved in this, and like a lot of folks, I went out and bought books and videos, and I was like, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe, you know. And uh, almost almost kind of to uh, almost to a fanboy level in some regards, because I, I was pretty naive about a lot of the personalities. Mm-hmm. And my father had actually turned me on to a lot of late-night radio where they were talking about this stuff all the time. So when I got a chance to go to this UFO conference, I said, oh, I'm, I'm there. So we hopped on a, I hopped on a plane, flew down there got there and just some of the stuff that i was seeing down there i was just like you got to be kidding me a lot of hucksterism oh we could talk about this for hours yeah just just the dynamics going on there were just so outrageous a lot of people were there talking about money movie deals book deals video deals distribution deals this deal that deal and that's what I really got a sense that a lot of that stuff was about. Uh, and when I started meeting a lot of these a lot of these researchers, this is actually the first place that I met Sean David Morton at. And after my conversation with him, it was just like, no way. <laughs> There's no way. How can anybody believe half the stuff these people are saying? It's so it's so outrageous. And when you start asking for proof, you get a lot of you get a lot of runaround. We've noticed that. Entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let me tell everybody you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And we have the man from UFOWatchdog.com, Royce Myers III, joining us on this session. We're talking, first of all, about the UFO Hall of Shame, which is quite well populated. And we're talking about some of the figures that are in that Hall of Shame. And, of course, you know about the skirmishes we've had with Billy Myers supporters and the man whose name begins with an H and ends with an N and we don't say it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we don't say it because he's addicted to negative attention. And uh, like uh, our our friend Jeff Ritzman has found out, you, you can't engage these nutcases, some of them, because they simply want attention, whether it's negative or positive. And this seems to me to be one of the consistent elements with a lot of the people in this little field here in that 
these are people who are just dying to be noticed. They're dying for attention. And, uh, you know, like, I, I've listened to Lazar's stuff. I, I listen to this guy speak, and it's like, what is he doing? Why is he saying this stuff? It's, it's non. a lot of what he says is just completely nonsensical, based on what I know, what, what little I know about what's going on at Area 51. It's, it's just, you listen to, to Lazar speak, and, and I start to wonder, what are the motivations of some of these people? I, I mean, Royce, how much money can one make by being a charlatan in this field? I think you can do pretty well. Mm. I think you can do very, very well. You know, these people are, a lot of these folks are continually on lecture circuits. They're selling books. They do, uh, you know, their own their own DVD documentaries that, you know, probably don't cost them very much to produce, and they turn around and sell them for twenty nine ninety five. And then, of course, there's that shipping and handling charge, which always comes in, too. And that's but, $29.98. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of people say, oh, there's no money to be made in UFOs, da-da-da. That's garbage. If there was no money to be made in it, you wouldn't see books videos, conferences, lectures, you wouldn't see any of this stuff happening. There's money to be made, absolutely. Well, along those lines then, give me your, your, your pick. Tell, tell, tell us who are your top two Hall of Fame people? Who are the two people in this field that you would say, okay, these people, well, for example, who would be the top researcher in your, in your opinion, and who do you think is a case of someone who's had a credible experience? Oh wow, that's uh, that's pretty reaching because there are so many good good researchers in this field, and you know everybody wants con like likes controversy and they like to see you know things fly, and so we tend to focus on the negative quite a bit in this field because there is a right. lot of it, and right. it's unfortunate that there is such a small group of very serious folks that really don't get a lot of attention, and I couldn't say I couldn't say this is the number one person. I just I really don't have an opinion about that because there are so many good researchers out there and so many good people with such good intentions that it's just very hard to nail down one single person. Well, give us an example. Oh, wow. Oh, geez. Let's see. Richard Hall. There's there's a good one. Hey, can I give you an experience with Richard Hall? I know Richard Hall. Uh-huh. I knew Richard Hall back in the 1960s. He yeah. threw me out of the nightcap office. He said, "You're not welcome here." I'm serious. What do you do that for? Well, let's let's go into that. And the first paid job I had, other than delivering newspapers or selling greeting cards as a kid, was the managing editor of Jim Mosley's Saucer News when it was a fairly serious publication. This before he sold it off to Gray Barker and got out of the field, which was about a year after he had this big convention in New York City. A year or two later, he got totally disgusted with it, and he said, Gray, you take it. Anyway, this is back in the mid-1960s. Myself and several other people, and I'll name them, Rick Hilberg, who's still very active in the UFO field, Alan Greenfield, and there may have been one other person, a friend of mine from Brooklyn, New York. I had been in NICAP's office before and prior to the association with Jim Mosley. So I walked to the front door, Hall opened it, looked at me and said, you're not welcome here. And that was the end of that. Now, years later, I talked with him and he seemed to have more of a whimsical look at the whole situation, didn't take it as seriously anymore. But that still sticks in my mind that maybe he's a wonderful researcher, but this one 
experience I had with him where I'd never done anything bad to him, understand. But he came back and reacted this way to me, and I presume largely because of the Mosley Association, because he hated Jim Mosley, and there was a lot of personality conflict between NICAP, which was where Richard Hall was working at that time, Major Donald Kehoe, and Jim Mosley. And I was caught in the aftermath or something like that. So that maybe he's a great researcher today, but I've got to interrupt with that. I wouldn't put him in the hall of shame because of it but that's what happened richard's written several very very good books and i'm sure you've uh, the ufo evidence is right. is his landmark work by far that's just such a great book and the follow-up the the second volume of that is, is really good too he's one of the researchers i'd name um personality aside <laughs> you know, <laughs> sure he's uh you know he can be uh he can be cranky Hey, he's welcome on the show anytime. We're not going to hold any grudges here. Sure, sure. He can be cranky. You know, I've had a couple of emails with him where, you know, he's kind of, he's he's just been a little less than nice. But, hey, what are you going to do about that, you know? Other researchers, uh, you know, do you guys know Kenny Young at all? Yeah. He passed away last year, unfortunately. And he was just, he is super super guy super investigator i believe his um his uh, ufo research cincinnati website's still up and he's another one of those guys that was just out there who was very serious about it and just really dug his heels in and did a lot of really good research and uh, you'll probably you'll probably recognize the uh, the trumbull county incident where the where the off where the police officers were chasing the ufo mhm and they got a bunch of 911 calls about it, and they had a lot of witnesses. He really did a very, very in-depth, just, just extensive investigation into that. He's one of them. Kevin Randall. Um, geez, there's there's so many. There's so many folks, you know, that we could just sit here and talk about that are that are such good, good researchers. Um, let's talk about a let's talk about an actual experiencer. Let's talk about someone who claims to have had a major UFO sighting or experience who you feel is particularly credible. Nancy Talbot. That's the first name of the, that comes to mind for me. She runs the BLT Research Institute. And Nancy has been in this field for a long time. And she does a lot of coordinating for research in the, into crop formations and to have, to have evidence scientifically analyzed. And she had a pretty strange experience that some people have tried to debunk. But, you know, Nancy's no, she's no amateur when it comes to this kind of stuff. She was in Switzerland, and she was staying at a house where a young man was having a lot of ex different experiences. And this young man, according to her, could apparently tell when where crop formations were going to take place near their property. And one night she was out on a balcony. She was she was a guest at their house, and she looked out. She was on she was looking out a window, and she saw this just this barrel of light come down out of the sky into a field. And the next day, when it got light, she went on out and saw that there's a crop formation out there. And you know when Nancy describes things, she doesn't get all emotional and hyped up. She's she's very very straightforward, and she's just one of the most credible people that I feel is out there because she does a lot of science and she's coordinated with a lot of a, a lot of scientists you know not a lot of people who pretend they're scientists but a lot of people who are actually PhD scientists who have been in their particular fields for years and years and years Fate magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown 
Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, you never know what's going to happen next. Hey, let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to welcome to our show the guiding light behind UFOWatchdog.com, Royce Myers III. And we started out talking about the UFO Hall of Shame. Now we're talking about the Hall of Fame. And, of course, number one on anyone's list is someone who, unfortunately, is no longer around with us, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. He's somebody I knew casually in those years, by the way. I had a couple of chances to meet him, interview him, and... And he was a great person, really a nice, friendly, gentle sort of guy when you talk to him in person. And in, I don't know if that necessarily transferred to his writings or anything, but he was the best kind of college professor you can imagine having. If you had to, he was a wonderful person, and I think we're all going to miss him. And he had a lot of interesting ideas about UFOs in those days, I don't think all of which he brought out in his writings. Royce, did you ever have a chance to meet Dr. Hynek? Uh, no, he, he passed away in 85, 86. Right. So around there. I think I was, uh, wow, I was young. <laughs> I was a lot younger. And so, you know, it was, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's pre, you know, Royce Myers UFO era by far. And I, you know, I, I would, it would have been a pleasure to meet the guy. I think the one thing that stands out about him the most was that he had initially been quite a skeptic and he was the guy that floated around the swamp gas theory that's, uh, kind of become popular with a lot of folks who are into uh, debunking a lot of UFO sightings. And later, kind of turn this corner with where he was saying things that he really couldn't explain. And it takes a lot of guts in a scientific community. Nancy Talbot and I have talked about this at length, about how it's very hard for mainstream scientists or scientists of any notoriety at all to really take the subject seriously without getting laughed out of their, uh, out of their labs. And so for a guy to start off as this this big skeptic who's hired by the Air Force and what many really did consider this, this public campaign to kind of put the lid on this whole thing, to at first come off saying, well, I think a lot of this stuff can be explained easily, and then going into doing serious UFO cases and, and, fly, and you know and being the founder for this, uh, this Center for UFO Studies, it's, pretty, it's a pretty remarkable thing. And it really does make a statement in terms that, you know, I mean, the guy was an astronomer. He was a noted astronomer. And for him to come around and say, hey, listen, you know, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying this is kind of a, a come-to-Jesus thing for him. Oh, you know, I see the light now. Da-da. I, I, I'm just saying that he was a guy 
who looked at things and said, you know, there's really something not quite explainable here, and I think we ought to take a closer look at it. I would definitely agree with that, definitely. He, and his, the intellectual his books, honesty, I think, is refreshing. Two of his books, and I've got an original copy of one of them, is the, the UFO Experience, which doesn't have a bunch of flash-in-the-pan big, oh, wow, look at this UFO. You know, the photos in the, in the book are, are, aren't really that great, but the content of the book in terms of the text is just really astonishing. That, uh, the Hudson Valley book that he, that he uh, co-wrote too. I mean, for somebody of that, to be up that far and to be considered a peer among other scientists before he wound up doing a UFO investigation, that's, that's pretty remarkable. Definitely the stature there. I was considering one other person you have on your Hall of Fame, which some people might say, hey, he's in the wrong hall here, but there are reasons for this, and that's Cal Korf. You know, Cal, I think, is 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 misunderstood by a lot of people. Uh, I don't know who's agree with some of the stuff that he that he winds up saying or or publishing, but the guy, there really there really truly is this take it or leave it deal with Korf that a lot of people have, and I I especially I, I just like the way that Cal just comes straight forward and says you're full of it. And here's why. And lays it out. Now, is all of his research 110%? No. No one's, you know, no. it's very rare that anyone's is. But in terms of just being this guy willing to go, to actually go, and this goes back to Meyer, to actually go out there and do an on-site investigation as opposed to what, Several other people haven't done who have either supported, who are either supporting the case or, well, they're supporting the case. In terms of him going out and doing that, you know, there's not too many people that can say, hey, I went out there and did this. And as far as, you know, replicating Meyer photos and stuff, if you look in his book, there are a couple in there that are just, they're superb. They're superb. Replicas of anything that Meyer's done, and I know a lot of other people have done the same thing in terms of replicating these photos, and a lot of them turn out a lot better than any of the Meyer stuff does. Well, sure. So, the, the, the idea that replicating the Meyer fabricated photos proves one thing or another—I mean, that's logic that Horn puts forward. That's just completely illogical. It doesn't prove a damn no, thing. No, it doesn't. Like, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't. The only thing it proves is that you can do it again. Big deal. Well, sure. Well, of course. I mean, but you've, to look at the Meyer stuff, I mean, the, the quote-unquote wedding cake photos are just, they're stupid. They're nonsensical. Anybody even not experienced in image processing can look at those pictures and instantly in the mind registers them as fake. You know, I, yeah. I think it's it's good that Korf wrote this book. I think it was obviously a useful exercise to write a book pr pointing out all of the inconsistencies and problems with that case. Mm -hmm. Of course, what frustrates me, Royce, is that, you know, that case, how much legitimate time for, from legitimate researchers has been taken away from looking at legitimate stuff, you know, in, in order to look at this nonsense that is obviously a cult? Look at all of the nonsense that's out there. Do you know how many thousands of hours total were spent just on the Dr. Jonathan Reed case alone? A lot of time was soaked up by that whole case. Mm -hmm. A lot of focus was soaked up by that case. And in the end, it just turned out to be just a small group of people lying about the whole thing. It's the other part of the problem that I have, too, is that these people who come out here with this sensationalistic crap and start promoting it and they start selling it are eating up valuable resources right. that could be used for legitimate investigation. Yeah, and right. it's just, it's sad. It's very sad to see. It, what's sad, what's really sad to see, are a lot of these UFO conferences buying into this. 
and giving these people time and money. It's ridiculous. You know, back in the old days, good old days, let's rave about that again. Back in the good old days, we had this line of demarcation. On this line, the serious scientific UFO researcher, um, this track we have the crazies okay we call them the crazies the contactees were always put in that category whether or not there was any element of truth to them or not but this is the crazies it's the scientific researchers never the twain shall meet somewhere in the last 10 20 years they met and ufo conventions merged the serious people and the people who are just out for the buck and that's it Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Royce Myers III. He is the force behind UFOWatchdog.com, and he has both a UFO Hall of Fame and a UFO Hall of Shame, the people who deserve to be ragged on. But do you see that how that the field has evolved or devolved in this way? Evolved, yeah, that's where I was just about yeah. to go. It has. It really has devolved in this whole carnival aspect where late night radio programs and other venues and people you know anybody can get a website now and throw up whatever they want that's and right that's how we're this here whole, this whole <laughs> yes <laughs> but you see, somehow we discovered a little measure of sanity although maybe we're overrating ourselves I I don't think you guys are. I think you guys are doing a great job. And you know, it's it, the the problem here is that like you folks decided to step up to a couple of people and go, you're full of it. Now guess what you are in the eyes of some. Well, yeah, but the people I who mean, look yeah. at us and I, look, if people have a problem with what I did with that ridiculous Billy Meyer photo, look, if they want to live in denial, that's their business. But you know, Royce, the thing is that one of the, the core reasons we're doing the show is is to try to really get a handle on what's going on here. There's definitely something going on that's not understood. And speaking for myself, I've had some experiences that are really odd that have made me genuinely want to understand. And, and that's the thing, Royce. It's not about believing. I don't want to believe anything. I want to know. I want to understand what it is that I've seen. And, and you know, falling back on stupid belief stuff is just not going to get me any closer to any real truth. So that's I mean, not going to get anybody any closer to anything. Right. You know, when you start applying belief, there is a religious undertone that goes along with, well, I believe this or I believe that. Right. You know, and, and I've been labeled this big, bad, you know, debunker who's supposedly getting, you know, rich from the government funding, who's funding all this <laughs> negative stuff. Well, if, you know, if I'm getting rich, I'd like to see a check sometime soon. If someone out there is listening, the, the ridiculous part about all this is that there is that big belief factor that goes into this, yeah. that where people are looking for something, maybe to fill a void. I don't know. You know, this is this is a whole other program. We could just talk about that uh, all onto its own. You know, a lot of people think that I'm this big skeptic that I don't believe in anything. Well, you're right. You know what? I don't believe in UFOs. I'm very convinced 
that something's happening. I just don't know what. And as 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 bland or cliche or as, as plain as that, that that sounds, it's just the truth. I don't know what's going on. Nobody does. And you always hear people out there, oh, I'm a UFO expert. There is no such thing as an expert because if there right. was in this field, we'd know what was going on. Right. And so as far as belief goes, it, uh, it just drives me nuts. It just drives me absolutely nuts with people, oh, you're not a believer, you're not a believer. Yeah, you're right. I'm not a believer. Absolutely not. Convince me. Well, that's a hard thing to do, of course, because when people have experiences, um, in many ways, experiences are personal. We recently had on a fellow who I, I know you've been in touch with, um, who I've actually formed a friendship with offline, Jeff Ritzman. Jeff is a guy who, when I speak to him about the experience he's had, and, and when, when he was on our show, i got to tell you, Royce, he comes across to me. And Gina, I'd be curious to know what you think about Jeff along these lines. But he sounds completely credible. It just does not sound like a guy who's making stuff up looking for attention. He sounds like someone who's really disturbed about what's happened to him. And he also, I think, wants to understand what the heck is going on. You know, Jeff and I are kind of in the same boat in terms of that we both get pissed off when there are a lot of other people out there selling fluff stuff to people. Yeah. And Jeff, you know, when I heard, I heard I heard that show, and I was just like, "Wow, I had no idea." He ne mm -hmm. never mentioned that to me ever, and we've and you know we've been in, in touch uh, online, but he'd never mentioned any of that to me. And just listening to him, I mean, what does that guy? You know, that's the bottom line. Who stands to gain? Right. Does right. Jeff What's the motivation? Really stand to gain? He doesn't stand to gain anything from any of that. Right. Nothing. Nothing that I can see. Some people could argue, well, you know, maybe he's trying to, you know, he's a debunker and he kind of wants to come in and shake hands with the with the UFO crowd. No, I, I don't buy that. I don't, I don't buy that for five seconds. I think that Jeff had a legitimate experience, and you know, he was very brave to come on and share that with folks. That is yeah. not something that's very easy to do, especially those kinds of experiences. And I remember him saying something about it costing him some friendships. Oh, yeah. You know, so again, what does Jeff Ritzman have to gain from that? Nothing. I thought his right. interview was very compelling because I didn't know what to expect. Although when he started telling the various stories of what happened to him, these were things I heard before. But I could understand why he might have been reluctant to share that information. Now, David and his brother, Barry, came on the show early on to talk about a sighting in Caracas, Venezuela, back in the 1970s. And I know David has wrestled with this for a long time because he didn't want to just go on there and have people say, ha, 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 he's just another UFO, not goodbye. He did this reluctantly. And when a person without an axe to grind, and David's not in the business of selling books and all that stuff about UFOs, he's not in it just for the buck, that kind of thing. He comes on, there's a measure of sincerity you get there that you don't ordinarily get because if someone's out there and they're selling their DVD or their product, well, we understand sometimes people have to make a living. It's when they prostitute themselves and they do it for the money. They step over the line, and that's why I like your Hall of Shame. These are the people who have stepped over the line. They may even have had at one time in their lives some real experience or some real information, but it's all gone. Oh, yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah, sure. Some of them most definitely could have. When they start selling, that's, that's the end for me. And that's not to say that people who are out there selling books that they're all you know in, in into uh, you know some financial uh, aspect of it so they can gain for themselves you know some of those people that are out there selling books have to do that because that's how they fund their research they don't have any other way to fund it you know because they want to do 
it full time and you know doing lectures and selling books equals income for them to continue but you can tell at least i think you can when someone's out there doing the whole mass marketing thing and trying to make a buck off this stuff well i mean that said it would listen i'll speak for gene and myself here royce i mean we'd love to have somebody fund this show to the extent where we could do this as our full-time gig i won't lie to you i mean that that would be a great thing but i think that the delimiter there that sort of the delineation is we wouldn't tailor the show to encompass an editorial point of view that someone was paying for. You know, if someone said to us, well, I'll fund your show and I'll give you guys a shot, but you have to only cover sensationalistic UFO cases where it's obvious that it's a it's a hoax, but it makes for good press, and you guys have to actually try to do the show in a way that gives that case legitimacy. I mean, that's one place where uh, nobody could buy me off. I mean, I just wouldn't I wouldn't stand for it. He wouldn't do it. Uh, I wouldn't either. I think we're we're too old for that kind of game. Speaking of doing things just to get ratings or stuff, one of the people in your UFO Hall of Shame is Art Bell. Now, obviously, I grew up not listening to Art Bell, but to Long John Neville. And Long John was not above, number one, attacking the fraudulent person when it made for a good show. But sometimes he promoted a few people just to get ratings. Um, he was an entertainer, a very good entertainer. Art Bell appears to be the kind of person who sometimes does it for the entertainment value. Can you be specific about a couple of cases that upset you also? Well, I could go back to one that upset a lot of people, was the whole Dr. Jonathan Reed hoax, where this guy came on, said that he was out hiking in the woods, and he encountered an alien and a small UFO. said the alien fried his dog. He thumped alien in the head with a big stick out in the woods, threw it in his Jeep, drove it home, and threw the alien in a freezer, and from there on out, you can guess what the rest of the story was about. Art Bell was a guy who promoted this thing endlessly. He had, I can't remember if it was seven, eight, maybe even nine full shows dedicated to this story. <sighs> this story, I it, this happened in 98. And November, and I started following it right away because I just I just looked at this and I said, "There's just something so not very right here." And I interviewed a lady named Chris Fine, who was acting as the quote-unquote business manager for the story and the people involved. Now, the second you hear business manager, <laughs> I kind of think that you can surmise what's going on here. So. Art wound up just following the story and following it and following it and following it and following it and promoting it and promoting it. And he actually said at one point, he said that the, I'm paraphrasing here, this isn't exact, that this guy had actual Kodak photos of an alien. And Art said that he had a photo expert and a video expert analyze all the stuff and said, oh, it's all real, it's all real. Well, in the end, as many know, this whole case wound up come, came crashing down. The problem with it was that a lot of people, including myself, had contacted Art and said, hey, look, there's a lot of things wrong with this story. And here, let's lay him out, like this guy's background. At the time, we didn't know who this guy was. And that was the key to the whole thing, was finding out who he, who, the, who this Dr. Jonathan Reed character was. And at the time, nobody knew, except for those involved in the hoax. And so a lot of people were looking at the photos and some other evidence, and this guy offered some background. And this guy's evidence and background started falling apart. I made one discovery, thanks to somebody who pointed me in the right direction, about this film about these uh, film negatives, where it turned out that the negatives that were, uh, the, the, the film type that was used to take these pictures, this film wasn't manufactured at that time. It wasn't manufactured until several months later. And that was one of the keys in saying, hey, look, this guy's full of it. 
he's a liar, and the evidence proves it. And so we, you know, I sent all this information to Art and got back, well, that's interesting, and that was the end of it. And then when I exposed the whole thing as for the fraud that it was to begin with, you never heard anything again. Now, Dr. Jonathan Reed, his real name is John Bradley Rudder, this guy got invited as the key, the keynote speaker to the International UFO Congress down in uh, Nevada. And while he's down there, he sells out his lecture. 700 people at 20 bucks a head. 14 and grand. Not bad. 14,000. Yeah, not too bad for a day's work, huh? Yeah. And he sold a bunch of copies of his book. And I feel that people who promote these stories have a responsibility, especially if they have a large audience that follows their work or their program, they have a responsibility to give you that other half of the, the story when they have it. And oftentimes that does not happen on a lot of these late-night radio shows. And that was one of the big problems that I had with Art. And then, of course, there was the whole Hale-Bob companion issue that uh, came out on his show and was later exposed by another radio program as being a hoax. And, you know, he's just endorsed so many of these phonies. And he said this on his show. He said that money equals ratings. I should know. Mm. And I think this is what really comes about. It comes down to that. Ratings equal money. It's all about money. No one, you know, a lot of people, a lot of these folks that have these shows are more concerned with their ratings than they are with legitimate uh, issues. And there were so many. Jeez, oh, I don't know how anybody could have fallen for this thing, but they did. That whole Dr. Reed thing. I just keep going back to that. Uh, because I was just so amazed at the number of people who were adamantly defending that whole case from start to finish and beyond finish. And when you have people who have those big audiences, they should be keeping their listeners informed. And they don't a lot of times. Well, because it is about the entertainment aspect for them, I think. That, that, well, that's the, other, yeah. that's the other problem that I have with a lot of those shows, too, is they want to come off as reporting news. But then when the uh, fecal matter hits the fan, suddenly, oh, no, it's entertainment. No, no, it's entertainment. You're misunderstanding right. us. Right. Well, there was that whole thing the, uh, that we I, I really did want to mention to you on the show today because I know that your site was the way I found out about this, this crazy Australian UFO wave <laughs> thing, which, you know, I have to tell you, I, uh, Gene had sent me, uh, forwarded me an email, I think it was from fr directly from you, Royce, about looking to get people's opinions about this footage. And I went and looked at this website, and I remember the very first thing, the clip I looked at was the one of the family in the car car with a light outside and I thought to myself I recognize that specific after effects effect it was uh -huh. uh, I think it was shine that was used to create those light strands coming down through the clouds and I thought there's something feel something doesn't feel right about this and I went and looked at other clips and honestly some of these pieces look really amazing the one out of, shot out of the plane out of the window of the jetliner I'm looking at this thinking man if this is fake this is really good stuff but then some of the other footage especially the one of the supposed alien I'm like oh this is just ridiculous and then sure enough the guy behind it, this uh, Christopher Kenworthy guy, comes out and admits mm -hmm. that the whole thing was essentially an art project. Uh, the, yeah, the day after, I somebody, some anonymous guy, I get, I get this stuff all the time, somebody sent me their, their analysis, okay, right, uh, on one of the clips, saying that, hey, it's a, it's a composite, you know, this is built up, this is actually a, a you know, a plane. The plane thing, right, yeah, yeah. And I read through it, and I thought, well, that's pretty, con yeah, that looks looks pretty convincing to me. And so I posted it on my website, and I sent uh, Kenworthy, I didn't know the guy's name at the, time, at the time, an email saying, hey, do you want to comment on this? And I never heard back from him. The next day, 
after after I posted the story, he he comes out and says, "Oh, it's an art project." On his website, right? And uh, yeah, you're right. Some of the some of the footage was very very good. He actually contends that two of the clips on there were taken by him are both legitimate, and a couple of the other ones, like you said, the one with the guy in the in the in the in the passenger as the passenger on the plane filming that, that was pretty kind of remarkable looking, right? And so, you know, I, I wound up contacting the guy, and I thought, this guy's not going to talk to me. You know, he's he's done his thing. He's gotten what he needed. It's, you know, and he wound up actually contacting me. So I gave him a lot of credit for doing that. And, of course, you know, it's free promotion for him as well, I'm sure. But at least he came out and said, hey, yeah, it's me. It's a hoax. You know, here's the reason I did it, da da da, da. The bad part of that now is how many of those clips are going to be floating out there that people are going to say, no, no, this is real, and it's going to keep adding to a bunch of mythos about right. uh, of several other online clips that are out there that everybody knows are fake. You know what's going to happen? What's going to happen here is that someone will say, you know what? The man in black silenced him. So he had to come out there and he had to say it was all a fake. This is the common man in black scenario. To which, by the way, if everyone wants to know to whom we address the blame for the men in black, it's the late Gray Barker, who wrote a book back in the 1950s, 1956, called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. This predates John Keel, predates the comic book, the movies, everything. It was all Gray Barker's fault. <laughs> but it created... You know, asked, I asked Kenworthy about that. I said, a lot of people are saying that your fund, you know, your movie's been funded by the Australian government, that it, you know, that it's a, that's a dis- disinformation campaign. <laughs> and he just, he laughed at the whole thing. He just thought, it's ridiculous. He just thought that any time something like this happens, people automatically think that, it's part of a disinformation campaign. Right. And he just he got a really good chuckle out of that. Well, the government is always a good whipping boy or whipping person to be politically correct. You know, if you can't get the answers you want, if you can't get the information you need, the government is keeping it secret somewhere in Area 51 or some equivalent overseas. You've entered another dimension. to tell everybody you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We have one big session coming, another one, Royce Myers III, the chief cook, bottle washer, floor washer, floor dryer, and webmaster for UFOwatchdog.com, UFOwatchdog.com. Lots of information, lots of interviews, a UFO Hall of Fame, and a UFO Hall of Shame. And I know, Royce, you had a comment on what I just said. Let me ask you guys, have you experienced this that you've gotten emails from people saying that you know your government is disinfo agents have you guys gotten that well mosley has over the years and you see with jim mosley you have to look at something here where you can actually say maybe he does because his late father was major general george van horn mosley who was like a deputy chief of staff in the army during the 1930s and therefore you have that government connection Okay, And then, of course, Mosley also had a show business figure in his family, the late character actor William Talman, who played Hamilton Berger on the old Perry Mason TV show. So now you have Jim with this parentage, heritage, family and everything. For years, they 
played the rumor. And this was a lot of it was Jim Mosley and Gray Barker sitting together at night, getting blasted and just making it all up and having a good laugh that Jim was really some kind of government secret agent. I find, I'm finding that kind of hard to believe. Yeah. <laughs> you know? that, and, you know, that's sad. That's that's really another sad statement about uh, about the majority of this field where somebody tries to come out, they try to do something decent to expose a lot of the frivolousness of this field that casts this big shadow over the legitimate core of the, uh, of the field. It just drives me, you can hear it, it just drives me nuts that there's this big paranoia out there. Oh, you're a government agent. Oh, you're a disinformation agent. Oh, you're a skeptic. Oh, you're this. Oh, you're that. You don't believe. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it goes back and forth, and it just clouds the whole thing up. You know, when I started the website, I was really hoping, you know, like I said in the beginning, when I first got in this field, I was lost. I read just so many different books and tried to digest all of it that it was just like, ugh. There's so many different viewpoints out there, and so much is going on, and there's just that that, that element of this circus element is the best way I can describe it. That circus element where, you know, these people are taking center stage, and they're just, they're just making a laughing stock of the people who are serious about yeah. this. Yeah, they, they basically, it, it's derailed the whole situation. You've got people who are looking for attention, who are looking to generate revenue. And uh, the signal, I, I, actually, I call it the signal-to-noise ratio. No, there's a tremendous amount of noise, and it's very hard to get to the signal. And really what it's done, if anything, is to just completely marginalize any discussion of this at all. It really now, I mean, look, I, speaking from my own experience, I know that there are a number of friends of mine who look at the Paracat and look at my involvement in it, and they think that I'm just, like, goofy for doing it. Like, why are you doing this? When I, when I talk to some of my friends about some of this stuff, I get eye rolls, a little snicker here and there, little head shakes, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Now, meanwhile, these are people who are happy to, maybe some of them happy to go to church or to synagogue and, you know, to uh, to worship the Easter Bunny. I mean, it's kind of interesting in how our, in our society, certain forms of mystical experience have legitimacy, and other forms of what I consider to be legitimate mystical experience are just completely marginalized. It's like if you, if you even want to talk about this, oh, well, now basically anything you say is suspect. I think that's sad. I mean... A friend of mine who actually gave me hell for doing the show, and she happens to be a big believer in psychics. It's like, well, <laughs> wait a minute. You know, you have an issue with something along the lines of discussing UFOs, but yet you're willing to say, okay, this psychic is really good. Well, wait a minute. What? There's like a disconnect there. It, it, but again, I, I think we see this disconnect in lots of areas of our society at this point. Oh, you especially see it in this field. Especially. It's just yeah. enormous. And people have taken the whole, the, just the acronym, just the UFO acronym, it has just been so twisted around that a lot of people really forget what it means. And, you know, a lot of people have, and these are different groups of people we're talking about here, these are some acronyms that I came up that I that I kind of found that people really are play, have placed on, on the whole UFO. They've completely forgot what it really means. Unidentified flying object. Right. It doesn't mean space aliens. It doesn't mean brotherhood brothers from the Pleiades or sisters from this system or this or that. It's unidentified. We don't know what it is, and we're trying to find out what it is. Exactly. But then there's the group that says, undeniably, from outer space. Everything, every single light in the sky, every object is from another advanced civilization somewhere. 
And then there's the group that think that all UFOs are these unfounded, foolish observations where every UFO can be explained as, let's see, uh, misidentified stars, planes, birds, bugs, swamp gas, ball lightning, satellites, comets, hoaxes, wish, wishful thinking, hallucinations, whatever else. And then there's the group that has this, these people are delusional, if you ask me, that they, they, they think that this whole UFO thing means that it's their ultimate fantasy outlet where they can live out every paranoid fantasy that they've ever had. <laughs> and then there's others, the people that we talk about, that we've talked about uh, capitalizing on it financially, who think that UFOs means that it's an, an ulterior financial opportunity. And these are just <laughs> these opportunist, sensationalistic idiots who are selling stories about government conspiracies and UFOs and aliens. And and the big thing that they usually, that a lot of these folks try, try to use is the truth. That's their big marketing thing, is the truth. I've got the truth and I can give it to you for twenty nine ninety nine, dollars 99 yeah. And $29.98 for shipping. Yes. Let's <laughs> not forget about the shipping and handling. Yeah. Actually, guys, shipping and handling costs usually are the specific costs associated with external third-party fulfillment. Yeah. So when you, when you see shipping and handling, that's what they pay the third-party company to package and ship and process the order. That's actually legitimately shipping and handling, but that's so they don't have to do it on-site. Of course, but not, these not, people don't do that. What they do is no, I know. they have their sons, daughters, friends, whatever. I know. Doing them in the living room, and they just charge you I that know. figure. So, Royce, you know, given all of this crap floating around here, do you think that there's a chance that we're ever going to get to the bottom of what's really going on here? I don't think in my lifetime we are. Hmm. I, I, you know, I just, I, I'd like to be a realist about it. I don't think we are. I think it's going to take a lot longer than that if this crap continues. I mean, pending that, let's say, said aliens do exist and they decide to land down in the middle of uh, New York City or somewhere else, you know. Uh, I mean, pending some big major event where uh, something's completely disproven or proven, I don't think we're going to hit the bottom of this anytime soon. You know, the, the signal-to-noise ratio, you're right about it. There's so much noise and shatter and other crap out there. It's just impossible to wade through it all. And, you know, like I said, when I got into this, I had no direction. I had a lot of just, you know, I went to um, I went to UFO Fest over in McMinnville. It's the, the first the first uh, UFO convention slash conference I'd been to in like 10 years plus. And when I got there, the guy that was organizing it, this guy named Tim Hills, really nice guy, and he was really trying to do something credible, but he's also trying to offer some lighthearted affair with it. And Paul Davids, do you guys know who he is by chance? No. Paul, he, he's the uh, producer of the Roswell movie that was on uh, Showtime. Right, right. Oh, with and Kyle he, McLaughlin. Oh, yeah, you're yes, right. Yes, okay. right. And he was there, and I, I used to do UFO lecture series. To, I used to bring in presenters where I live at, and I stopped doing it because uh, I ran out of money. <laughs> but he was there, and I hadn't talked to him in several years, and we touched base about a lot of things. We had a couple of interesting chats about you know, what was really going on in the field and about, you know, people really seeing what was happening with some of these very extraordinary cases. Yeah, it's just very, very hard for folks to really get rooted down into what's what's really going on. I don't pretend to know what's really going on because I frankly don't. And anybody that claims to, I don't think has a clue. <laughs> and it's just really hard to wade through that crap. 
You know, I mean, the conversation Paul and I had was it was a little depressing to some extent. Phyllis Gold was there too. I had a, I had a conversation with her as well. Pretty long about that, about that too. And uh, I was really, I was really kind of surprised when I went and did this uh, because initially I wasn't going to go do it. I, they they invited me to come do a presentation, and I was just no. I was very much against it. I just told the guy, I said, look, I've got a personal policy that I don't, I don't go do these things. And he said, look, just listen to me for a minute and explain what he's trying to do. And so I thought, okay, I'll go do it. And I was remarkably well received. I was very surprised. Because during the lecture or presentation, whatever you like to call it, I always tell them that I just simply don't believe in any of this stuff. And you always get that. It's just it's hysterical. You get this dead silence, these very pan looks, a couple of, of uh, displeased expressions. And then you tell them, well, I'm convinced. Well, then people start smiling and, you know, you're kind of you're OK with them then. I was just very surprised that I was that well received down there because I, I pretty much laid the whole thing out for him. I was no holds barred, and you know I was I was really well received. So I think that in terms of making headway and finding direction in this whole field, that people are starting to kind of go, I don't know about this guy, and they're starting to kind of take second looks at folks and reevaluating a lot of people who in the past have made pretty sensationalist claims that were widely accepted by the majority of the UFO community, if that's what you want to keep calling it. And I think a lot of people now. Have access to a lot more information than you did because, of course, now we have the internet. Things are shrinking. It's easier to get information and do checks on people. And so I think we're starting to kind of wake up to the fact that there are a lot of charlatans and frauds and snake oil salesmen and just general dirtbags out there who are willing to tell you whatever you want to hear as long as you're willing to pay for it. I'll tell you what, Royce, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to thank you for bringing the discussion back to the center where it should be, which is to separate the wheat from the chaff and we wish you well, and we definitely want you on another episode of the Paracast. Oh, I'd love to do it. I, you know, and you guys are doing a sensational service. You guys are doing a great job, and I'm really glad that, you know, this is really what a lot of these late-night programs should be. I'll know we've made it when we're in your Hall of Fame. That's okay. when I'll know we've really arrived. <laughs> All right. <laughs> This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. You know, that was really some guest there, and I hope he'll be back soon to talk about more of the people in the Hall of Fame and maybe a few of the Hall of Shamers, but I hope not so much. You know, David, there are lots of places where people learn about our program. There are podcast directories, iTunes, etc., etc. But we want you people to help us out. David, tell how. Yeah, we, we want people to tell other people what they think of our show. There are a few reviews for us up on our page on the iTunes podcast 
podcast directory. There are some votes for us over on Podcast Alley, but I would strongly suggest and urge you, if you're listening to the show through one of the aggregators like PodcastAlley.com, or if you're listening to the show through iTunes, and you find what we're doing compelling and you like listening to the show, please vote for us on places like Podcast Alley, or even better, iTunes has reviews, and we'd love to get feedback from you guys and have you give the wider audience feedback about what you find compelling about the show. We've got some great reviews on the iTunes page, so please, if you listen to the show, give us feedback. You know, we're, we're not asking you for money yet, <laughs> but we'd love to have your feedback. Listen, this is what I think keeps us going, Gene. You know, I know that when people send email to us directly through the Paracast website, I read every piece of email that comes in. I love reading that people enjoy the show. You know, I mean, you know, it's nice to have a little bit of ego gratification here, knowing that someone is listening. That's always a nice feeling, isn't it? It's a wonderful feeling, and I hope that you folks, if you like what we do, and you get it from Apple's iTunes, give us a review and tell them what you think. And if you use one of the other podcast directories, like Podcast Directory, Podcast Alley, etc., they give you a place to vote from one to five stars. I hope we get five but we want you to express your opinions honestly and we'll have more of the same next week on The Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.